This is exchanges at Goldman Sachs where people from our firm share their insights on developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications at Goldman Sachs. On February 12th, Goldman Sachs, together with its partners from the Paulson Institute, the U.S.-China Business Council, and the China Development Research Foundation, hosted the U.S.-China CEO Bilateral Investment Dialogue, an event which brought together CEOs, policymakers, and thought leaders for a day of discussions on how to advance the U.S.-China investment relationship. Mark Schwartz, Vice Chairman of Goldman Sachs and the Chairman of Goldman Sachs Asia-Pacific, is here with me today to discuss that dialogue and the state of U.S.-China economic relationship. Mark, welcome to the program. Thanks, Jake. Great to be here. So let's start with the uh, big picture. The United States and China are the two largest economies in the world by a long shot, and obviously their economic relationship is already extremely significant. But one of the reasons that Goldman Sachs hosted this U.S.-China CEO bilateral investment dialogue is because investment between these two countries could be much greater given the size of their economies. What are some of the challenges to an enhanced bilateral investment relationship, Mark? Jake, there are a lot of challenges to closer ties between the U.S. and China. Um, many of those challenges are political in nature. Many of those challenges relate to just a level of distrust or mistrust or uncertainty between the two governments, between the two peoples. And so um, that's got to be overcome. It's got to be overcome by much closer cooperation, much closer economic ties, and much closer ties in terms of investment and trade. And that was one of the reasons that we were promoting this dialogue, and also one of the reasons that we're so engaged in this discussion between China and the U.S. So the dialogue convened both American and Chinese CEOs and some public sector officials, some reasonably prominent ones, a wide range of stakeholders. Um, why are we going so broad with this group? Well, we're going very broadly because there are many different ways to think about the relationship between our two countries. In certain ways, our two countries have gotten a lot closer over the last 30 years. In China, the biggest change in the last 35 years was that period in the late 70s after Mao's death with the ascension of Deng Xiaoping. And in 1979 and 1980, when Deng Xiaoping began a period of modernization, um, almost economic democratization in China. And that began 35 years of very significant growth in China. That's the period during which China was basically growing at double-digit rates of growth every year. And in the relationship between the U.S. and China, there was a lot of growth in that relationship during that same period of time. So one way to measure that growth is just in terms of trade. Trade increased significantly. I think in 1979, there was just a trickle of trade between China and the U.S., probably about $2 billion worth of trade. 35 years later, trade between the two countries is around $550 billion, almost $600 billion annually. Amazing, amazing growth in that trading relationship. And when you think about it, not so surprising. How many U.S. consumers are buying goods from China 
in this day and age. So many of us. And likewise, so many Chinese consumers now, with rising wages and a rising standard of living in China, so many Chinese consumers beginning to buy iPhones and many other products from America. In the late 90s, the United States and other countries welcomed China into the WTO. And as a condition for entering the WTO, China agreed to change a lot of the way in which it ran its own economy. And this was widely seen as a, a victory for the reformers in China to make their, uh, their country a bit more, more capitalist and a bit more free market uh, economy, and really to liberalize the state-owned enterprises. Talk a little bit about the progress over the past 20 years since the WTO uh, has really taken off with China as a member and how it's changed the way in which China interacts with the world. Jake, if you remember in the late 90s, Zhang Zemin was the president of China and Zhu Ranji was the premier. They were the two leaders in China who were beginning the first series of very important far-reaching reforms. One of the reasons that they were so focused on reform is that growth had slowed in relative terms. Growth was around 7 to 8% in the mid and late 90s in China. And they were realizing at the time that they needed more than just their own subsidization of enterprises, of state-owned enterprises in China. And they were trying to attract foreign capital and foreign direct investment for the first time into China. And in fact, Goldman Sachs was very involved in the early privatizations. We were involved in the privatization of China Mobile, and then PetroChina, and then Bank of China. In 2001, China finally gained entry into WTO. That was an important, momentous event in China. It accelerated the reform movement. It also increased growth. If you look at growth in China in the early 2000s, it went from 75 to 8% to 10 to 11%. They got enormous benefit economically out of all of the reform and out of their ascension into WTO. That single event, China being accepted into WTO and agreeing to all the international protocols that are incumbent upon participating in that organization, they gained a lot more internationally. They, they were brought into the international community for the first time in a very meaningful way. In effect, China was graduating from a period of being somewhat insular and inward looking, inward focused, to 2001, where they entered the WTO and became a much, much bigger part of the international community. I would say that has now accelerated in this new leadership era under uh, Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang. These are the new leaders in China, and they are very focused, not only on reform, on creating much stabler, higher quality, more sustainable growth, they're also very focused on being more engaged internationally, more engaged globally in politics, but also in trade and commerce. And in these last two years, there are many, many examples of China striking big trade agreements around the world, China being much more involved in global security issues, in global terrorism issues, and global economic issues. 
Mark, at the dialogue, we heard from mayors in the United States who were very interested in the trade relationship between the countries. We had the mayors of Long Beach in California, Tacoma in Washington State, which both have huge ports which serve the Chinese market. But we also had mayors from places like Dothan, Alabama, that you wouldn't necessarily associate with U.S.-China trade. What did you learn from listening to those mayors about how greater investment by Chinese companies in the United States can really foster growth here? What's been so interesting, um, at a very national level, there's always concern in the U.S. about whether jobs are lost in these big trade treaties and these big investment treaties. There's always concern about labor. And likewise in China, a lot of concern about employment and increasing employment opportunities for Chinese. But it's been very interesting in these last several years as Chinese companies have made more investment in the U.S., especially over the last four or five years, if you listen anecdotally to the early experiences in local communities across the U.S., in the Midwest, in the Southwest, across Detroit, across Michigan, if you listen to mayors and governors and local government officials across the U.S., who have welcomed Chinese companies, the experiences have almost been uniformly positive. The Chinese companies here in the U.S. are benefiting because we heard in the dialogue how many Chinese companies realize even better returns, even better rates of return on investment, on returns on equity, making investments here in the U.S. We heard that a lot from our Chinese companies. So I think the early examples and the early successes should make us more optimistic. But the reason we focused on the bit, the bilateral investment treaty, is that many more additional jobs will be created by foreign direct investment in each country. So for example, when Chinese companies invest in the U.S., the U.S. government has estimated that as many as 70 to 100,000 additional jobs for American workers have been created in the U.S. And similarly, when we measure how many Chinese jobs have been created by U.S. investment in China, we measure that at about one and a half to two million jobs for Chinese employment. So both countries benefit meaningfully by trade, but will also benefit enormously by increased investment by increased foreign direct investment. Mark, for some of our listeners who might not be as well-versed in some of these issues, what exactly does a bilateral investment treaty do, a bit? And how would it impact both Chinese and U.S. stakeholders? A bit is really a roadmap, a, a set of rights and protections that are made available to investors, in this case, U.S. investors investing in China and Chinese investors investing in the U.S., it creates a certain set of rules and guidelines which by themselves increase trust and confidence in the investment opportunity. And so having a bit in place should meaningfully increase foreign direct investment. This treaty that we're talking about today, this bilateral investment treaty, has been negotiated now since 2008 between the United States and China. So What's the impetus for getting it done now, and how could it, for, for someone who's not spending all their time thinking about this 
investment treaty, how would it make things better? On the China side, under Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang, those two leaders of China decided when they became the new leadership team in 2012 that they would focus on reform, that they would focus on creating a more market-oriented economy in China, moving further away from state-controlled enterprises to private enterprises, moving away from a period of intensive focus on uh, investment, on fixed asset investment, to a greater focus on consumption. So they decided in the third plenary session in 2013 to lay out a broad blueprint for reform and opening up their markets. So the bilateral investment treaty actually fits perfectly with this renewed focus and this very intense focus in China on reform. That's the reason from a China perspective why the bit is now such an important priority. From a US perspective, the simplest explanation why this is so important now, because the US investors, the US companies, um, and so many foreign companies even beyond the US are so interested in the China market. The China market now represents 1.4 billion consumers, 20% of the world's population. And China has evolved rapidly over the last 30 years. As we said a moment ago, incomes are rising meaningfully. Per capita incomes in China now are six or $7,000 per capita. 600 million people over the last 30 years have been lifted out of poverty into a growing middle class. The market, the consumer market in China represents for US investors and US companies and foreign investors in general, probably the biggest market opportunity available and probably sustainable over many years, maybe over many decades. So the US not only wants to be the primary trading partner with China, but the US wants to meaningfully increase foreign direct investment in China. And that's the reason there's so much focus on the bit right now. And Ambassador Froman, who is the United States lead negotiator on this, made clear that they have about a little bit under two years left in office, and he's going to be committed to working on this up in the last day. Jake, I think the bit is going to be one of the highest priorities for the U.S. government, for President Obama, for Mike Froman of USTR, and it's most certainly, I think, the highest priority for Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang and the Chinese government. Let's talk a little bit about our business, the capital markets business. China made a commitment last year in May to really reform their capital markets. To date, they've largely been funding growth internally. Uh, so why is that effort so important to the modernization of the Chinese economy? Well, the financial system, the health of the financial system in any country, including in the US, is really the underpinning for growth and development. In China, more so than in the US and elsewhere, because although China's economy is $15 trillion in size, the state of its capital markets are very underdeveloped. Far more underdeveloped relative to the size of an economy like China's than you would ever imagine. So China's got to reform its capital markets. China's got to open up its capital markets. That's part of this whole discussion about the bit. And if it does, in our minds, in our judgment, 
there will be more innovation in financial markets, more creativity, more financial products, better risk management, better funding opportunities, not just for state-owned enterprises, but more importantly, for all the privately owned enterprises in China, all the small and medium-sized enterprises that China is so focused on right now, who would benefit greatly from the reform of capital markets and opening up the markets, and all of that can definitely be accommodated and accomplished under the bit. I just want to make a quick comment about the way Chinese companies have funded themselves in equity markets over these last five or six years. And interestingly, if you look at the Shanghai Composite, which is really an index which measures the performance of the local, the domestic China equity market, the A-share market, that index from 2008 to 2013 went from 6,000 to 2,000 at a time when GDP in China basically doubled. That's a very, very unusual, I would guess, a relationship that's never existed before, where the size of an economy doubles in size while the domestic equity market basically loses two-thirds of its value. Now, interestingly, in the last uh, six or nine months, the A-share market in China has now begun to improve. It's gone from 2,000 uh, to 3,000 to 3,500. So it's in the early stages, the, the early years, the early months, I should say, of a recovery. But it's one of the reasons why the bit and why the reform of the equity markets and the reform of the capital markets is so very, very important in China because there hasn't been a real opportunity or avenue in these last six or seven years for Chinese companies to fund themselves in, in the domestic equity markets in China. In fact, they've been funding themselves in the Hong Kong market, and they've been funding themselves overseas in the U.S. market. One of the specific ways they've tried to address that issue, Mark, is through the creation of Shanghai Hong Kong Stock Connect, which launched late last year. That allows Hong Kong investors, mainland investors, to buy stocks in each other's markets. And there's been some talk recently about expanding it to fixed income products. How has that, the Stock Connect program, fared in the early days, still pretty new? And how might it play a role in developing the capital markets as you've described? To this point, it's been very difficult, almost cumbersome, for foreign investors to invest in the equity markets in domestic China. So one of the reforms that the bit will address is basically financial liberalization. It's one of the reforms China, Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang are very focused on. And it's one of the big focuses in the bit is how to facilitate and accelerate financial liberalization. Well, one of the focuses under financial liberalization is to get more capital flowing more easily in and out of the country, what's called in technical terms, capital account convertibility. The Hong Kong Shanghai Connect allows now much greater trading from Hong Kong, from foreign investors in Hong Kong to trade on the Shanghai market, the domestic market. And similarly for domestic investors, domestic Chinese investors to buy stocks and equities on the Hong Kong market, in other words, to get capital invested outside of the country. Obviously, the bit is one of the more prominent 
policy initiatives between the United States and China at the moment. But Mark, what are some of the other things you heard at the dialogue? What are some of the other ideas that you thought offered the promise of improving the economic and maybe even the political relationship between the United States and China? There's a lot of reason why the U.S. and China should be much closer. Not only are these the two largest economies in the world, but there's already a very substantial relationship between the two countries. The U.S. is China's largest trading partner, while China is the U.S.'s second largest trading partner. And China, as everyone knows, owns more than a trillion dollars of U.S. Treasury securities. So there's already a lot of cooperation, a lot of interdependence between the two countries. So beyond just investment, beyond foreign direct investment and beyond trade, what are the kinds of ways that the U.S. and China could be drawn more closely together? Well, some of the issues we discussed at the dialogue, some of those issues included national security, for example, the militaries from both the U.S. and China communicating much more openly and much more frequently. There are many ways for the two countries to cooperate and collaborate on anti-terrorism measures, on cybersecurity, on environmental reforms, on climate change. Most recently, the U.S. and China striking an important and first collaboration on climate change, a very important signal to both countries and also an important signal globally that the two countries are going to cooperate. There can be a lot more cooperation on clean energy technology, a lot more cooperation on intellectual property, on the protection of IP, on patent laws. So in all of these ways, the two countries hopefully will collaborate more closely. But of all of the opportunities, probably the best near-term opportunity to create more trust, more confidence in one another, more collaboration is an investment. It's really in the bit. So let's close with the big picture. Uh, the dialogue that we hosted in New York followed one we did in, um, in, in Beijing last July. This focus on this issue on, on bilateral investment uh, is part of a much larger picture. You've lived in Japan. You watched what the Big Bang did for modernization there. When you step back and think of the big picture in China, how do you see the relationship evolving and reform evolving over the next decade or so? Jake, we're bullish on China, and we've been encouraged by all of the early statements, early speeches, early policies, and early reforms under Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang. We really are. Uh, Goldman Sachs has been working in China now for 20 years, our first 10 years as a rep office, and more importantly, our second 10 years since 2004 as a full-service firm operating as a joint venture in China. We've developed a very, very high-quality business in China during those 20 years and believe our business is going to grow very substantially in, in the decades ahead. We believe our China business will be one of our most important businesses at Goldman Sachs. But Jake, probably every company believes that about its operations and the opportunity in China. Uh, under Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang, we can see the country making the right decisions for the long term. And we have a lot of confidence in their ability to execute. We think the country is heading in the right direction. We feel like the reforms 
discussed at the third plenary in November of 2013 were a set of sweeping reforms that'll be incredibly complicated to embed in the Chinese economy and Chinese society. But we believe the Chinese leadership has the resolve, the commitment, the resources to actually get it done. We're bullish and confident in the Chinese leadership and their commitment to reform. And we're also encouraged by their commitment to the bilateral investment treaty. Mark, thank you very much. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward, and thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded on February 13th, 2015. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast is not financial research, nor a product of Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.